Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Fay. Uh, Peter Cat and Sue Grimmett are with me via Zoom. Sue, just from the office, despite this being the maybe seventh or eighth podcast via Zoom, Sue, you still aren't doing Peter's backgrounds. No, no, still going going with the books. I think it's actually got more to do with the hair situation to be honest you try putting a virtual background with this kind of hair and it would give people a dizzying kind of experience well, <laughs> I keep mine short that's why I keep yeah. mine. <laughs> that's uh although I'd love to see you with uh, some more adventurous hairstyles Peter what what background are you um are you working with today uh, that's a little place in Tuscany today beautiful yes. Well, uh, and when I was fourteen, I had hair down to my shoulder blades. So I'll show you the pictures. Oh, <laughs> well, that's um, we'll have to get that posted on the on the way Facebook page at some point. Uh, look, we we are so excited um, about today's guest. He is a, a man whose work has um, influenced us uh, individually and probably collectively for a number of years now. I know Sue, you've mentioned that that um, this guest might be more quoted in your sermons. Uh, at St Andrews and Hidropili than, than any other um, writer or speaker. He is a name that will be familiar to many. He is speaker, writer, and and probably the central figure in the world today for Celtic Christianity, John Philip Newell. John Philip, welcome to uh, the On The Way podcast, and thank you for making time. Thank you, Dom. So good to be with you. And uh, we are very excited to be talking to you. You're, you are in Edinburgh um, at the moment, which I think Sue mentioned earlier is our third uh, Zoom guest from Edinburgh lately. So Edinburgh seems to be the epicenter of the um, the emerging faith world at the moment. Is that is that the sense you have over there? <laughs> A lot of good energy is happening here, I think. Yeah, beautiful. Um, well, look, you, you've written a number of uh, brilliant books, some of which uh, I think uh, our listeners will be familiar with. I know the rebirthing of God, one of your your most recent works before this one is um, one that I've had a number of conversations and and even a small group that was exploring for a while. Uh, your latest book that's only recently um, come out is called Sacred Earth, Sacred Soul: Celtic Wisdom for Reawakening to What Our Souls Know and Healing the World. Uh, through the course of the book, you you do look at a number of the key figures in the Celtic uh, Christian movement over the, the past few thousand years and the influence they have had. Uh, the, before we get into talking about Celtic Christianity, and we, we want to talk about, um, you know, some of the Celtic greatest hits as well, things like Thin Places and Anamkara and all of those as well in this conversation. But I'm interested if we can start, John Philip, with your own experience um, with the Celtic tradition, how you found yourself, uh, I suppose, uh, walking in, in this space. Yes, uh, I, I grew up in, uh, in Canada. My, uh, my father was uh, Irish and my mother Scottish, um, but they, they met on that side of the Atlantic. So I was born in Canada, uh, which, uh, which makes me a bit of a sort of mid-Atlantic uh, confusion. Um, in my in my accent, people often don't quite know where to place me, but I feel very comfortable on both sides of the Atlantic. But in Canada, growing up as a boy, uh, I, I grew up in in a very uh, conservative evangelical Christian tradition. And um, although that is not uh, where I am or where uh, how I define myself now, uh, I carry a lot of gratitude for for what my parents gave me in that tradition. And I, I think that um, they, they nurtured an ability in me or an attentiveness in me to, um, to pay attention to the heart. Um, and I, I find um, often when I'm in the presence of teachers from other traditions or people on the other side of some of these so-called boundaries that have been created to separate us or distinguish us, I find myself first and foremost paying attention to the heart of the other. Uh, so that that was a, a grace that um, has been with me throughout my life. And I think that the um, certainly the Celtic tradition is is attentive to the heart. It, it cherishes uh, an awareness at the heart level as well as the head level. I think the other thing uh, that was important for me, looking back on my journey of boyhood, I was drawn very naturally to to spend time 
in in nature in the wilds and um uh, i was fortunate to spend long summers up in the canadian muskoka lakes um well north of the cities of big cities of canada like toronto and that, there i i felt uh, deeply at home and felt uh, closer to my own core or my own center. Didn't particularly have language to articulate it or, or express it, but <clears throat> looking back on it, there was a type of deep knowing in me in, in the context of the wild and the natural. But there was really very little language in my religious inheritance to, to make sense of, of that experience. Uh, it, it was an experience of the sacred, but I wasn't yet in a sense, able to call it that. I didn't have the vocabulary religiously to make that connection. And uh, then I, I came to Edinburgh to study theology when I was in my early 20s. And early in my time here, I heard uh, George MacLeod speak uh, publicly. Uh, he was already uh, quite a legend in Scotland. He was uh, probably around 80 at that stage. George MacLeod, the founder of the modern day Iona community, and uh, one of the uh, prophetic characters that I write about in this new book. But I remember clearly hearing him speak publicly in Edinburgh, and I was a young man, and uh, I heard, I think for the first time in my life, um, a Christian teacher articulating a sense of the sacredness of the earth and also the sacredness of nonviolence as the way of true relationship, not only between us as individuals, but between us as nations. And uh, that was a coming home experience, hearing George MacLeod. And I realized uh, very clearly at that moment, as I was listening to him, I need to find a way of coming close to this man. And uh, I didn't know how I was going to do that, but, uh, a month, about a month later, uh, the universe provided me with the opportunity. I was on the island of Iona and uh, I bumped into the great man uh, on a path uh, on Iona. And um, uh, he, um, as I recount in the book, he said to me, Newell, come back for a whiskey. And um, I, I don't think I had ever had a whiskey at that point in my life, and certainly not uh, at three o'clock in the afternoon. Um, but when the, when the great man says, come back for a whiskey, you go back for a whiskey. And, uh, and that was the beginning of a very important relationship. And um, George MacLeod really opened a gateway or a doorway into a way of seeing that I was deeply hungry for. Uh, and um, since then, it's, it's been a matter of building and digging more deeply into this tradition and uh, the, into the Celtic stream of wisdom and asking how do we apply this wisdom to this moment in time in our lives individually, but also collectively. Yeah, it's, it's uh, McLeod is one of the figures that you, you do write about in the book, in the journey of the, the Celtic tradition. And you, you attribute him with the, the quote that uh, thinking that matter matters, um, you know, rather than there being a spiritual realm and a physical realm and, there being, you know, some big distinction between the two and, and what's down here on earth in the physical realm kind of doesn't really matter that much, that it's actually the manifestation of the the sacred. Um, yeah. when, when you first came across these ideas, I suppose, from a, a different tradition growing up, did they sound outrageous? Did they sound radical or did they, they just feel, I don't know, natural to you? Well, they were giving voice to what at, at one level I knew, and, and that's, that's a theme that I explore in the book, and, and that is how in our spiritual traditions can, can we give voice to, to what the soul already deeply knows, uh, so that we're not, in a sense, uh, dispensing truth from above people or uh, from afar, but rather uh, trying to give simple expression to what I believe the soul deeply knows, and that is the sacredness of the earth and the sacredness of the human soul. I think very early on, though, in hearing someone like George MacLeod, for instance, I was aware that there were radical implications to this way of seeing. 
And I think that's one of the important things to say about a figure like George MacLeod, but really all of these great figures that I draw from in the, in the new book. Uh, it, this is not a sort of nature romanticism. Uh, th this, uh, it, this is a tough, um, demanding, uh, grounded uh, spiritual vision because uh, when someone like George MacLeod says matter matters, then uh, part of what he's saying is um, how we handle one another in relationship physically matters, uh, how we care for the bodies of those who are suffering and hungry, poor matters, how we handle the, the uh, body of the earth in, in its resources uh, uh, with reverence and with equity uh, these matter, and uh, and I I knew that uh, George MacLeod was was someone who um, who didn't make people feel comfortable um, in his articulation of vision because it is challenging. Uh, uh, so I was aware that um, that there was a radical edge to this stream, and certainly what I have discovered in my years of research study teaching around these themes is that again and again, these prophetic figures in the Celtic stream, so many of them have ended up being pushed out of the church yeah. or declared as heretical. And uh, that's, that's usually an indication that, that, uh, that the message is holding some radical, radical challenge. And that's certainly the case in, in this stream. Yeah. Uh, Sue and I were on this zoom chat uh, a little bit before um, the, the other two of you did jump in and we were talking about um, how we, we both picked that up from the book and looking at these characters that often people think about the Celtic tradition and they think about deep peace and they, they think about this really beautiful, um, you know, sense of calm and groundedness, which is all absolutely there. But you wouldn't think uh, deep peace and groundedness would be enough to get all these key figures silenced and shunned um, by the church. So there really are radical implications yeah. that that maybe are often overlooked in the maybe maybe this is the the meatier part of the Celtic tradition is often overlooked by people who appreciate the the beauty of Celtic prayers or Celtic um, spiritual music, but don't over, don't quite you know come to grips or don't quite hear the voice in there that's telling them you, you this is awakening you to an entirely different way to relate to to everything in your life and one which probably the empire whichever empire you live under is not going to um. <coughs> you know, is not going to like, do you, are you surprised that the, that political edge of the Celtic tradition is often not, um, does it might be a surprise to people? Yes. It, and it, and it sometimes take, takes a while for, uh, for people to, to wake up to the implications. Um, and, uh, but I, I, you're absolutely right to say that there is this element of groundedness and, and a deep, um, peace that can come with a reconnecting to to the sacredness at the heart of our being. For for me to to continually be called to awaken to to the the beauty and the sacredness that is at the heart of my being, a pure gift of God, and to look for that and to serve it and to find ways of setting it free in at the heart of your being. Um, the, this. Uh, this does have a have a beauty and uh, in my experience a deep peace to it and and there's that lovely prayer in the celtic tradition that that originates in the western isles of scotland uh, which is deep deep peace um, and and it's speaking of the deep peace of the running wave and the deep peace of the flowing air and the deep peace of the quiet earth and the deep peace of the shining stars and then it ends up with the deep peace of the son of peace. So it's it's making um, a beautiful link again and again between the earth mystery and the Christ mystery, um, uh, seeing a profound uh, connection between these. And um, and when when we link into <clears throat> the sacredness at the at the heart of another human being, when we uh, link into the sacredness at the heart of the earth when we uh, in the Christian household are aware of the sacredness that, that Jesus discloses in his life. And, and um, I, I see that as a disclosure, not of a sacredness that is somehow just in him, but he is um, an epiphany or um, 
a revelation of the sacredness that is at the heart of you and at the heart of every human being, heart of all things. Uh, there's often a process of waking up to the implications of that. Um, in the uh, in the ep epilogue or uh, conclusion of the book, I tell the story of a of a woman. Uh, uh, attending one of my talks in California a number of years ago. And she had been at many of my talks before. Uh, but halfway through this particular talk, uh, she leaned to her neighbor, uh, meaning to whisper, but in fact, it turned out to be a stage whisper so that everyone, <laughs> nearly everyone present heard. And what she said to her neighbor was, he's a fucking radical. <laughs> <laughs> And um, uh, afterwards, she, you know, she was a bit embarrassed uh, be because this had been heard uh, throughout the room, and she was apologizing. And I was saying, you know, don't, don't apologize. I mean, you, you, you have woken up. I mean, you've seen the implications, and uh, and this is uh, any great spiritual tradition, I believe, is um, making that connection between inner change and inner peace and uh, uh, committing ourselves to outward change and transformation and an outward harmony or a peace between us as races, as nations, as religious traditions. Yeah, that's it's something from your work that I think has come through. Certainly everything I've read of yours, I remember that the first book I read was The Rebirthing of God and just being struck by um, how radical a, a way of viewing things it was to to move away from a model where we have you know God or the sacred and we have to give it to others to thinking uh, of it as awakening it in one another as you, you talk about awakening there and how many implications that has firstly for you know it, it sort of removes a lot of the anxiety that people in churches have about the church fading or the religion fading because it's you know this idea that this voice could ever just quieten and, and die off. It's not really possible as long as there's life on this planet. But the the whole way to, in terms of how it changes how you view all of humanity, the breadth of humanity and the breadth of creation on the planet, it is like a um, it, it is like that Genesis twenty eight sixteen moment of Jacob waking up and saying, "Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it." All around, it's so uh, yeah. you, you must have been yeah. present, John Philip. You must have been present through your work to the the aha moment for so many people. <laughs> where they come to this this moment where it suddenly is clear to them, that must be quite a gift. Yeah, uh, it, it is a gift. And uh, it, and it's also shaped how I view myself as a teacher and how I view what we are to be uh, to one another. Um, basically liberators or, or um, awakeners of, of what's already in, in the other. Uh, and and that, that is... Uh, that's a liberating awareness as teachers and as as soul friends in in relationship that we we can find ways of of releasing what is what is in the other and uh, i think i tell the story in the book it's one of my favorite stories um about giving a talk in virginia many years ago in in a little church and I had just uh, recently uh, published one of my early uh, books, uh, Listening for the Heartbeat of God, in which I explore some of the themes of the Celtic stream, uh, particularly the sense of when we look into the face of a newborn child, we're looking into the face of God, freshly born among us. And uh, at the end of the talk, um, a woman, I think in her 80s, came by purposefully up the central aisle with a copy of Listening for the Heartbeat of God in her hand. And she was coming up the aisle so purposefully that the naughty boy in me thought, she's going to hit me over the head with that book. <laughs> uh, but when she got up to the front, uh, she opened the book, her copy of the book, and said, I want to show you what I wrote in this book after reading it. And I saw that she had written, I knew it, I knew it, I knew it. And um, I so often wish I had asked her for, for that copy um, because she had said so simply, so succinctly, what our experience is when we hear 
wisdom that has been neglected. We may not, we may never have heard it before. It may never have been taught to us. But when we hear it uttered, uh, our deep response is, "Ah, I knew it." Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I often think of of that woman, and and if if I had had her um, her copy of the book, I would have kept it uh, right here on my on my study desk to 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 remind me. I, I think it's so important. It's uh, there, we've had this uh, tragic history in so much of our Western Christian t- uh, tradition of of teaching authorities somehow placing themselves above the people. And, uh, and that, of course, was convenient to empire. That's, uh, that's what the Roman Empire in the fourth century, when, when it claimed Christianity as its religion, uh, that was part of the sort of unspoken agreement, really, is um, we want to use religion to, to continue to hold our power and to do what we want to the earth um, and to keep, keep the people down, I suppose, or to keep the people obedient and... and uh, obliging to what empire wants to do and uh, as you intimated i think earlier don uh, i mean we're not just talking about the roman empire um, we're talking about what the british empire has been what the american empire has been any any attempt by a nation to um to to uh, dominate and and exploit the yep. well-being of other nations for their own sake and capitalism is the current empire Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I think too, we, then we have this double move where people feel anxious or feel that they failed in some way because they don't have faith in their understanding. They say, I try to believe, I can't believe, but they're trying to believe in something that's being imposed from outside. And instead of getting that resonance that you're pointing to of saying that, uh-huh, oh, yes, of course, I've always known that this is true. And that for me is, is where real faith is founded when you get that um, echo in your own soul of something that someone is, is maybe... Um, revealing to you but it has to come from within but I I feel um, you know the church has done such a disservice when we've made faith to be some sort of competition or some sort of propositional um, ascent that people then have the double anxiety not only are they being robbed of the faith that was there that is theirs anyway but they are then feeling bad or guilty because they can't align themselves with what's being imposed from without yes yes and um you know, one of the things I've loved and so appreciated in the Celtic stream and uh, and applied and have tried to be true to in my own life, and this is the theme that we find as early as uh, someone like Pelagius in, in the Celtic world in the fourth century, and that is the important discipline of having an anam kara, um, a friend of the soul or a lover of the soul, uh, because... Uh, while there's this emphasis on uh, needing to to know truth uh, deep within ourselves rather than just know about truth through sets of propositions, uh, there is this inner attentiveness that's being encouraged, and uh, and only I can, can do my digging for, for that inner truth. Um, rather than you telling me what's in me, or um, or a teaching authority telling me what's what's in me, but very importantly in this stream, it doesn't it doesn't just end up in a in a, a, a sort of comfortable or convenient uh, individualism, um, in in which we you know believe whatever whatever we want the. The Anamkara, having an Anamkara, and Pelagius describes it as someone to whom we show everything and hide nothing. Um, and the, the the beauty and the discipline of that relationship is that it's not that my the lover of my soul knows more of what is within me than I do. It it, it is the the discipline of trying to show, trying to utter, give utterance to what is in my soul. It's when we utter, I, I believe, what's stirring in us that we come into greater consciousness of truth and wisdom. And it's as we become more and more conscious, especially in the presence of another, another who has faith in us and another who loves us and cares for us, 
that, that that consciousness more readily then moves into action in our lives. Um, so that it, it, it's, um, I think it's one thing to be, to offer a critique of, of sort of hierarchy of truth in our Christian inheritance, but the opposite of that is not a sort of uh, subjective individualism. Mm-hmm. I think the, the, the meeting place that, that these cultic teachers point to uh, very importantly is a type of accountability that we have uh, between us as brothers and sisters to um, to challenge one another in love, but also to 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 be much more uninhibited about trying to express what is in our soul. I, I think with this great weight of doctrine and propositional truth, there's been a sort of in, inhibiting factor. We've almost been afraid to to give expression to something that might sound uh, counter mm. orthodoxy. Yeah. yeah, I think that's spot on, absolutely. When I joined the church, well, I, I joined the church because I discovered that I was actually interested in spirituality. And in my early 20s, that came as a real surprise to me because my only exposure to Christianity before that was uh, ideological and doctrinal. And uh, yeah. I, I happened to uh, come across a group of people who were enthralled by worship and um, that actually said to me, wow, this is this is not what I expected because the rest of the time it would have been people drawing circles with sort of funny Venn shapes in the middle of it trying to explain to me what God looked like. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's beautiful. And and I know t- following on from that, um, you use, uh, I can't remember who it is you're quoting in this part of the book, but you, you use one phrase talking about the unity and connectedness of all things not at the branch level, but at the root level. And that stuck out to me as um, such a profound truth, speaking of this whole individualism approach that, that we often try to in, uh, you know, corporate groups and gatherings have this connectedness at the branch level, you know, that everyone is thinking, expressing, showing the exact same thing. And it moves us away from the truth, which is that we're not, the branch level is not where we're connected. We're connected underground in the root, the root system almost of the soul and of, of, um, of life itself. It's such a, I, I suppose, you know, in, in a sense, it's such a deeper connection than any connection of thinking the same dogmatic thoughts could ever be. Yes. Yes. I, I think it's, it's a very important principle. Uh, the, the, the teacher that, that you're um, referring to was, was Alexander Scott in the 19th century. And uh, interestingly, a friend of of Charles Darwin's. Um, so as as Darwin was developing this uh, the sense of everything unfolding, everything forever evolving, uh, Scott at the same time and and in a very complementary way was looking at the the essential uh, interrelatedness of of all things. And uh, to speak of a, a type of union or oneness at the root rather than in the than at the branches, is to very importantly distinguish between union and uniformity. Oneness is not about conformity; it's not about uniformity. Um, and then one of the the later th- thinkers in the stream from the French Celtic world, um, someone like Pierre Terre de Chardin, French a Catholic a mystic scientist priest. One of the principles that he applied both in his scientific work, but also in his spiritual awareness was the principle of true union differentiates. Um, and in part, he's asking us to think, you know, who are the people uh, with whom we have known deepest union in our lives? And these are the people who have the power to most radically set us free, uh, right. to be ourselves, to be uh, our, our distinct sort of unrepeatable uh, expressions. And, um, and this, this is true of, of the oneness of the universe. What, what does it keep doing? It just keeps throwing up um, uh, uh, multiformity. It, it keeps th- uh, throwing up new expressions of this, one life force that is deep within all things. 
and I think that this also is, is uh, of course, a, a challenge to how, how we have thought we should organize ourselves uh, as a Christian household. And, of course, uh, the more sort of imperial uh, model wanted sort of uniformity. Mm. And, and it's interesting in the, in the uh, early Celtic mission in, you know, from the fourth century right through to, to that point of conflict between the imperial mission of the church and, and the, the Celtic mission. Uh, what we find in the Celtic world is a type of family likeness among monastic communities. But each, each community uh, had, had its own particular and unique uh, rule or expression of life. And that this gave room to a lot of creativity. Um, rather than a sort of slavish fol following of, of uniformity. John, Philip, I think one thing that I've been thinking about since reading your book um, is that concept of rewilding, which we're, you know, we're looking at across the globe as one of the answers to our climate crisis, is that if we allow nature to do what nature does, um, and, and I started thinking, well, what, how does that apply to the church? How, how do we rewild the church? What, are, what would be going on there? And, and a lot of you just alluded to what that might look like. There's going to be rich and deep relationships. There's going to be space for um, diversity to flourish and to bubble up in new and, and different directions. And there's going to be family like that, that kind of deep familial ties need to be there to allow that, you know, when you look at the way um, forests rewild, you know, they are connected and we're increasingly aware of how much they communicate. And um, But I think it also applies to within ourselves. We could ask ourselves, how do we rewild ourselves? Um, and and uh, some of those same principles might apply um, and it certainly will involve letting go or releasing ourselves from the things that stop um, emergence, the things that stop us from being um, companionable to ourselves, I think, um, and to reaching out to a greater and deeper relationship with others. So, you know, I, I think that the whole um, principle, we have a lot to learn from, from nature anyway, but I think the Celtic tradition probably does point us to, to let's get a bit serious about, about learning some of those lessons. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, and I, I think one of the things that nature shows us and, and the universe at, at large shows us is that uh, anything that is living keeps keeps uh, unfolding. It, ke it keeps uh, finding new expression, new form. And if, some, if something has stopped um, unfolding, uh, changing, that, then it's dead. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and, and this principle of of allowing ourselves, as the very name of, of your podcast indicates, is we're on the way. <laughs> we're we're in a flow, uh, and and where is this deep sort of flow of, of the sacred within us? Uh, where where is it taking us, both individually but but also uh, together? Mm -hmm. And um, there's this rewilding of the world. Um, is so important, and and one of the expressions, or one yes, one of the expressions of it is uh, a movement called the Church of the Wild, um, uh, which, which is um, it, it's uh, finding expression in different parts of the the Western world. I think it's been primarily in the United States, but in the Church of the Wild movement, uh, there there are these sort of lovely practices of remembering as the Celts uh, said that when they spoke of the cathedral of earth, sea and sky, it's this remembering that the real cathedral of God is this living unf unfolding natural cathedral of the universe. And, um, and I think it's, it's important uh, in our cherished places, you know, these places where we do gather inside four walls uh, these uh, these are places w that we have often um, cherished because of community and because of relationship and because of inspiration and and uh, the important things that have happened in that space. But one of the things I I feel is we need to keep remembering that these uh, cathedrals of our of our creating 
of these sacred spaces of our creating are really just like side chapels onto the, onto the big cathedral. And we need in our language, in our rituals, in our teachings to keep, in a sense, moving from the side chapel back, back out in, into the big cathedral and to allow uh, that sense of the immense and uncontained sanctuary of the divine to keep uh, informing, to keep um, uh, inspiring what we do in, in the side chapels. Yeah, it's getting in touch with that dynamic that we so often lose where you know, in the Anglo-Catholic movement, they used to remind themselves that if they were going to discover Christ in the sacrament, that was only so they would be more sensitized to finding Christ in the poor once they left yeah. the church. And the warning was constantly, I remember the Anglo-Catholic conferences of the 1930s, it was the constant warning that if they ever lost sight of the Christ in the poor, that the Christ in the, the bread of the Eucharist would become a ritualized quantity rather than something that was setting people free. And we're constantly in that risk of um, letting the particular become so particularized that we forget that it's actually a signpost to the general. We're supposed to supposed to discover the sacramental universe through this. You know, and as, as, as one person once said to me, you know, we, 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 genuflect, we genuflect before the sacraments so that we learn to genuflect to each other. You know, it's a yeah. way of actually reminding us that uh, as we have discovered the sacred in this beautiful particular, we actually are to honour the sacred in the, the very next person we encounter because they too carry that image. And yeah. And that, that uh, it collapses, so often it collapses back into that particular yeah yeah and making making that link is is so uh, so vital it's so so essential and if we fail to to make the link then then we're in trouble um i i've been doing a little bit of research uh, lately in scotland about the sacred sacred wells of scotland that that um, were were everywhere in the, in the sort of celtic landscape and there was a great a tradition of, of pilgrimage to sacred wells. And uh, in, the, in the 16th century, and at the time of the Scottish Reformation, um, a sort of Calvin, uh, an extreme form of Calvin, Calvinism um, was really leading the aspects of the Reformation. And I sometimes refer to the 16th century reformers um, in Scotland as, as the Scottish Taliban, because they they were often uh, it was often a very violent um, yeah. reformation yeah. and one of the the tragic things that happened in the 16th century was a forbidding of uh, pilgrimage to sacred wells uh, in a sense saying you know that the sacred is to be found in the font of the church not not yeah, in yeah. the sacred wells of the earth and yeah. forgetting of course that 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 the font of the church um is built on on the, the sacred uh, the sacredness of the earth, um, yeah. but uh, sort of tragic examples not only of blocking up the sacred wells of Scotland and forbidding pilgrimage, but in some cases actually poisoning the waters of, of the wells. Um, and this this is a, uh, I mean a tragedy in and by itself, but it's it's also a metaphor or an expression yeah. of how religion has often ended up. Trying to block up the uh, block up the, the deep well springs of the sacred uh, in those way beyond the four walls of the church, or uh, to to somehow inhibit an accessing of the of the sacred flow of the divine deep within the earth, um, and very importantly, uh, the sense of sacredness that we encounter in the poor. I actually love that part of the book. I love the, the St. Bridget's stories too, because it's also that uh, that um, stopping of the of the feminine too, of the sacred feminine is is also in that imagery of of water and and the and the wells of St. Bridget. So, um, you know, it, it, what a powerful image that they were they physically had to, had to fill them up. You know, I I just yeah, it's, it's such a, a tragic thing. I also would like you to. Um, the the story and I'm trying I was trying to flick and find it quickly of because Hiroshima Day is coming up 
shortly too. And you tell the story in here when we're thinking about how, um, how what a metaphor, um, the idea of what actually happened, um, you know, when the atomic bomb was, and we're actually looking at at the atom itself and how that is, a, you know, the microcosm of what was going on there. And meanwhile, we're all in our churches still just proceeding as usual. Um, I'd love, I think it'd be important right now to kind of unpack that one a little bit too, if, if you could, to, to tell the story again. Yeah, that's right. It was, um, it, it's a story from, uh, from George McLeod's life. And he was, um, he was on, on the island of Iona uh, when news came through of the dropping of the atom bomb. Uh, I, I have the passage here if you'd like me to read it. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. It's so, it's so beautiful. I mean, I, um, I, I actually will, I was thinking I would share that um, with certainly my congregation with Hiroshima Day coming up and it will probably be, um, this podcast will probably be released soon after that. So I thought I, I would share it. But if you could read that, that would be very, very wonderful. Yeah. I never like to uh, even try to paraphrase George McLeod. I mean, it, it's, it, that's just a good, <laughs> that's just a good uh, So he, he's reflecting uh, after the 6th of uh, August, 1945, he later reflects on that moment when he was on Iona and heard uh, uh, the news of the dropping of the bomb. So he writes, suppose the material order as we have argued, is indeed the garment of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit, then what is the atom but the emergent body of Christ? The feast of the transfiguration is the 6th of August. That is the day when we happened to drop the bomb at Hiroshima. We took God's body and we took God's blood and we enacted a cosmic Golgotha we took the key to love and we used it for bloody hell. Nobody noticed. I'm not being cheap about other people. I did not notice it myself. I was on Iona celebrating the feast of the transfiguration in a gown and a cassock, a hood, a stole, white hands, saying with the whole Christian ministry, this is my body, this is my blood. At the same time, our so-called Christian civilization, without church protest, made its assertion of the complete divorce between spirit and matter. One man noticed when the word came through to Washington of the dropping of the atom bomb mission accomplished, Dr. Oppenheimer, in large degree in our name, its architect, was heard to say, Today, the world has seen sin. Mm. Um, McLeod then goes on to, um, to speak about the word sin, and um, he, he uh, is, reminds us that, that etymologi etymologically it comes from the uh, old High German uh, Sunda, which means to sunder. Um, so sinning is, is about sundering. It's about tearing apart what uh, essentially belongs together. It's uh, separating the heart of my being from the heart of your being or the heart of our being from the heart of another nation or another race. Um, it's the way the human species has sundered our relationship from the other species of the earth. This is all um, uh, the sinning that, that, we are part of that we need to turn from yeah that's that's just um <clears throat> quite it leaves me a bit speechless hearing that again and and i know um you you talk about grace actually speaking of you know that approach to sin you talk about grace sort of as opposed to the original sin idea that a lot of western christianity has, has had that grace saves us from our nature that grace instead is what um, returns us to our nature grace is what makes us natural again um, you know, and, and it is, it is intriguing to think about how people of the faith could, could allow something like that to occur without much reflection of, of what a violation of this creation itself 
that mm. actually is. And I, I'm, I'm wondering, John Philip, actually, I, I, I wanted to go here at, at some stage talking about the poet Kenneth White and, um, and his concerns with the problem of the, the word God, how the word God might in some way be part of the problem in this because it's, it's continually um, setting up this idea of a spiritual realm and then a, a physical realm. And, um, you know, God then just becomes this intellectual exercise of do you think about God as a real thing? Yes or no. And not really relevant if you, if you choose no. You know, if the word God can be problematic in, in that way and making this division between spiritual world and, and physical world, why do you think that the the word is still um, so important to, to hold on to? Yeah, I, I mean, I I um I so love Kenneth White's poetry, and and I so understand his concern about the 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 word God. Uh, I suppose the the main sort of challenge or problem with the word is that when we use it, we think we know what we're talking about. Um, Rather, rather than always remembering that um, that the one we are trying to give expression to uh, is always beyond is beyond words, is beyond statement, is beyond definition, uh, and and to know that 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 of godness at the heart of one another is is also beyond definition. Um, so so that uh, for you to be made of God. Um, means that um, I'm being invited to approach you as as undefinable. Um, yes, you 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 are a young man. You're Australian. You're a son. You, you know, you're maybe a brother, or you know, all these other things that that you may love to say about yourself. Um, but none of these things, when uttered, give expression to the unspeakable mystery that's at the heart of your being. And we've often used this ability to label or to define the other um, as, as a way of thinking we have the other sort of slotted. Um, and, and of course, it's, it's been very dangerously used in relation to race and sexual orientation. Um, and we, we uh, think in naming the other that we, you know, we've, defined, we've defined the other. Um, so I, I understand Kenneth's uh, struggle and in the book i say maybe we need a moratorium on on the use of the word for a while um, um but at the end of the day I, I deeply believe that this is a word that certainly i um i hope we we can continue to creatively use to give expression um i think in the book i tell the story of martin buber the um 20th century um, Jewish teacher, great teacher uh, from within Judaism. And uh, he, he heard uh, Paul Tillich, the great German-American theologian speaking, I think it was before uh, the Second World War in Germany. And uh, Tillich at that stage was arguing that we, can't use, we couldn't use the word God anymore because it's so uh, identified with um, just a, a transcendent um, male, uh, vindictive uh, figure. Um, and Tillich was saying very creatively, and I think we need this creativity, and the word that he, he was offering and using was to speak of the ground of being. Um, and, and, and that uh, is a way of speaking of the immanence, the withinness of the, the sacred flow of the divine rather than uh, um, a transcendent removed um but buber was at was at, was at the lecture he was a young man at the time and he stood at the end of the uh, of the lecture during the, the q and a time and said we must not let go of the word god because god is a primal word that is it it uh, precedes even sort of our religious creeds and articulations uh, and uh, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm very much with, with uh, Buber on that. I think it is a primal word, but we need to get back in, in touch with its primal significance and uh, not let our uh, definitions of the divine um, lead us to uh, naively think that we've got, <laughs> got God named and figured out. 
you know, that uh, central story, that first major story of revelation in the Hebrew scriptures, when um, when the divine presence is known in, in a burning bush, um, when Moses encounters a bush that is on fire without being consumed, and uh, my rabbi friend from New Mexico, Rabbi Nachum, likes to say about that story, well, the important thing about that story is that the bush, not that the bush was burning, but that Moses noticed, uh, because every, every bush is on fire, everything is on fire with the divine. Yeah, uh, but when when Moses says, you know, tell me who you are, I want a name. <laughs> um, the the response from the fire at the heart of the bush, at the heart of all life, is I am who I am. Not not I'm this, I'm that. I'm not I'm father or I'm mother or I'm Lord or the other words we use. Um, so I, I mean, the great thing about someone like Buber, of course, is that he loves using all all these um, many words, um, and I think that that is the artistic and creative, expressive part of us that we love. Just just like when we're, we're in love with someone, we we uh, we keep coming up with with words, attempts to to give expression to the beauty and mystery of the other. Um, and I, I <clears throat> just before we leave, um, Martin Martin Buber, who, whose uh, uh, Jewish expressions I think are so resonant with a lot of the, the Celtic stream. Um, I love the story of Buber being asked by a German pastor uh, if he believed in God, and Buber's response was, uh, "If to believe in God means to be able to speak about God." Uh, no, I, I don't believe in God. But if to believe in God means to be able to speak to God, uh, yes, I believe in God. Um, so you know, he and that you know, he goes on to say, of course, that the only way, the only word that is not metaphor um, that we use about the, uh, the divine is Thou. Um, when we directly address the mystery um, at the heart of all life and deep within ourselves it's thou it's it's a direct address it's not me speaking about the divine it's me uh, trying to uh, give expression of my heart and soul to the divine yeah that's wonderful that's wonderful i'm just reminded of a uh, of a story i've told on this podcast once or twice before about a, a high school student in some high school work that i um that i do who knew that I was in the faith role at the school and um, did not consider themselves to be somebody of faith. And they were uh, they were telling me about this experience they'd had looking out over the ocean at sunset and seeing these birds flying almost just above the surface of the water. And inside of them, they said they felt connected in a way they'd never felt connected. And then they caught themselves mid-sentence and said, oh, I'm sorry, this probably doesn't have anything to do with God. And I, uh, I could, I couldn't help but you know, but but laugh about um about that. And I, I suppose that is the the understanding of the world, of the word in a rational culture that you know isn't isn't helpful. But when you talk about their experience, um, you know, how else do you describe it? What else are they connecting with? There is a, I don't know, a, a sense in that word where it. And I know you've said this before, Sue. It's um, it's not perfect. It's probably the closest we've got. Yeah, and, and we can't, you know, I, I don't think we can shed it either. I think um, it is, I think primal is a, a good way of articulating why it's so important. But I do think also everything that we've been saying here circles round a bit to our earlier conversation, talking about um, the, you know, the, the how, containing God, thinking about, yes, we meet God in church, but we've, we've fixated on some of our um, rituals and signs and ended up try, making them static. And so instead of, you know, the Eucharist reminding us of the sacrament of the whole world, we think we've got God contained there. And so con this, this idea of naming God is, is uh, also part of that pattern, wanting to hold, contain. Yeah. Um, and instead, we need to be reminding ourselves and teaching actively how that what we are doing, what that our um, all the rituals that we are a part of, if it's in worship, are, are a sign pointing outwards to to that greater whole of the God whose glory is everywhere. Yeah. yeah. And if we if we throw the word God away, then we end up um, reducing 
it'll, it'll end up being that sort of utilitarian Western. I mean, there's nothing, there's nothing that the Western culture would love more than for us to abandon the word God as something that keeps tripping us over because it really wants us to become reduced to the, the needs of the empire, which are not to have God um, drawing us beyond and asking us to inquire who we might be called to be. It, it wants to tell us who we are, and it's pretty simple stuff, you know. Go to work, buy stuff, um, live in a very contained set of relationships which we will define for you, and um, we will tell you when you're being good or not, and don't you dare uh, refer to something else that tells us that life could be different or better or transformed. You know, that word you used very early on, uh, John Philip, the idea that we, you know, once we once we get a hold of the experience, we cannot help but be transformed. That is the most scary thing that the empire, that's the, that's the scary thing for empire, is the idea that people will be transformed into actually caring. Yeah, yeah, and um, uh, that, yeah, we've we've sort of uh, circled around to this uh, this theme a number of times, but it's that combination between um, uh, the way someone like John Muir puts it, uh, and I explored sort of John John Muir's um, prophetic role in, in terms of awareness of uh, the environment and mm -hmm. and. And the sacredness of wilderness or wild space, uh, the combination that we hear in someone like in someone like Muir is that we need to keep falling in love, mm. uh, falling in love with the the, the sacred wildness um, at the heart of all things, mm. and and it's when we fall in love. Uh, and then then we know about giving ourselves the the connection between. And falling in love and and wanting to live the way of sacrifice, live live the way of giving ourselves for that sacredness at the heart of one another and the heart of the earth. And uh, if we don't find ways, both individually in our lives, but also collectively in our spiritual communities, of uh, feeding uh, feeding the love and allowing ourselves again and again to fall fall in love then um, then our, our action piece can become like a like a duty uh, uh, rather than carrying the fire the fire of uh, love in it which I think is the essential fire for true change yeah and our, our political um, leaders are really keen on um, having us define the people we love as as only those who belong to our family. So, yeah, after the family. So, um, the the financial um, measures that are being taken in the midst of the COVID lockdown are all about how we get food onto the tables of families. Yeah, it basically says says, you know, we're going to even tell you who you relate to and who you care about. Mm -hmm. And we're going to use it in, we're going to just use it as a mantra to reduce your commitments to four or five other people, which means that while, while we're destroying the cosmos or destroying the homeless or attacking the refugee, we can tell you that those people don't really matter to you because the people who matter to you are family. Whereas Jesus would say uh, they are family, and so bl blow blow up the idea of family to the point where it is all encompassing. Yeah. But you know, there's this constant push for us to limit ourselves so that we don't care enough to make a difference. Yeah, and and you know if we can't care about the person who's on the footpath as we walk down the street, then there's a good chance we won't care about the tree that's about to be destroyed. And so empire will continue to do what it does to the planet. Yes, absolutely. Lockdown has really revealed that. I was fascinated by an article talking about um, 
how this has impacted on single people and I'm single mm. myself and so and I was chatting with friends about this how you know in and we have thankfully not had too much of a lockdown in Brisbane but in um in certainly in other parts of Australia there's all these bizarre rules of who you are allowed to visit yeah and you know so you know friend family's the only one that makes a, a mention there really immediate family but there's you know the there's a need for companionship for everyone but you suddenly realize what um makes sense in the context of your societal system and what they don't compute at all and what is not seen as as valid and there's people who are being isolated for a very long period of time because their relationships are not deemed to fit into the right categories yeah and so right. they're, they're just on their own um and i think another if we're talking about transformation that word you know this is all part of in in recognizing all those connections we're talking about healing is the other word that we haven't brought up here and and i think we're rewilding is about healing and I, I found it now that lovely i highlighted it that lovely quote from john muir of earth has no sorrows that earth cannot heal i, I thought that was such a beautiful line uh, and i think it applies also to just recognizing um that we are part of the wildness of the earth mm. and we have the capacity for healing and the the spirit that we know that imbues all life and the Jesus who we follow who was the great healer um, this transformation is about that wildness also being our healing yeah and, and it's um it's a very liberate it's a hope-filled uh, statement by by Muir uh, and it's a very liberating one um, because it reminds us that the the, the healing energies um, uh, are there uh, in the earth, uh, and they're there in one another. And our role is to uh, once again uh, set them free, or or to uh, to get out of the way of of doing the things to the earth or to one another that that have uh, broken, infected the earth and and one another. Um, and it's it's a helpful reminder that we find in different expressions through through these great. Um, Celtic prophets in the book that uh, our role is to assist uh, or to be servants of this deep healing energy, this deep birthing energy. Uh, I, I, you know, there's the parallel theme in, in Bridget as the midwife of the Christ child where yeah. we can't create the birth. Um, uh, our role is to midwife and, and to uh, to enable what's trying to be born within one another and within the earth to to come come into being. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's, I'm reminded of a conversation I had a couple of years ago in the midst of the turbulent times we're in with a more conservative friend who said, I just read the news every day and I think, oh gosh, we could really use Jesus again right now. You know, if Jesus <laughs> wanted to come again right now, that'd be so handy. And that, <laughs> something deep inside of me, knowing you know that, that deep knowledge you talk about, that that that's what is being wished for is happening every moment of every day is being birthed all around us right now, and and the incarnation, you know, to I, I can't remember who I'm uh, quoting from the the book here, but that the incarnation, this might be John Muir as well, that the incarnation isn't this one-off event in the man of Jesus, but the whole thing, each tree, each bird, each rock. You know, each yeah. drop of water is incarn is the incarnation, the divine incarnation. It's um yeah. tremendously inspiring and hope giving in the midst of the climate crisis to to think that the potential for change is being born all around us in every moment. Yes, yes, it's, it's it is mirrored, Dom, and uh, he he you know he even speaks about the geological formation of the earth as the instonation, the instonation <laughs> of God. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, that's beautiful. So uh, as we, we wrap the conversation up, John Philip, and we're so grateful for your time, it's, um, you know, this this tradition and these words, this this way of understanding is so wonderfully life-giving in a, a world that especially of late, I think, has become quite aware of how disconnected and isolated um, and hungry we are to see these everything around us differently. I, I am wondering though, in, in what is still a very rational culture, a culture in which empire in one form or another is dominant wherever you, you, you look on the planet, what is it that, that gives you hope that, that we can have a reawakening 
to the the deepest part of ourselves that we can have a reawakening to see the world in this way and um and rediscover uh you know on 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 mass in some capacity who each of us actually are and what this life actually is yeah i i um your your question makes me think of um uh tom thomas berry um who was um an, an eco theologian um very much serving awareness of the sacredness of the earth and uh Thomas Berry, uh, before he died, uh, described this moment that we are living through, um, and by this moment, I, I'm meaning this growing earth consciousness, this growing uh, awareness of the essential interrelatedness of all things, this awareness that is really sort of breaking into our consciousness through every great discipline of thought and, and study. Um, uh, from from ecology, you know, right right through to uh, the economy of 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 knowing our interrelatedness and that what we do to a part, we do to the whole, and, and that we cannot be well just by looking after ourselves, but by looking after the other parts of this interrelatedness. But um, uh, Thomas Berry said, um, "We're we're living in a moment of grace." Um, we are being given this awareness of the earth and the interrelatedness of all things, uh, the likes of which humanity has never known. Uh, but very importantly, uh, Thomas didn't leave it there. Um, being a good prophetic figure, he went on to say, and moments of grace are, are transitory. Uh, in other words, will we meet this moment? And will we serve this moment of growing awareness of the earth and interrelatedness? Or will we miss this moment? Uh, and that, that's the question before us at, at this moment in time. Um, are we going to serve this growing consciousness of the sacredness of the earth? And I would include in that a sense of the sacredness of one another, every race, every people. Or uh, will we continue to live in ways uh, that that lead to a, a, a tragic missing of the moment and uh, an endangering of of the life of this planet as we have known it. I suppose that is the question of our times, um, you know, more more than anything else. And uh, I, I will say, your work has just been profound and instrumental in um in my life, in our lives, in in helping to awaken to to meet this moment. So thank you so much, John Philip Newell. The, the book is called Sacred Earth, Sacred Soul, Celtic Wisdom for uh, Reawakening to What Our Souls Know and Healing the World. It's a brilliant book. You're a brilliant man doing brilliant work. And uh, we are so grateful for, for your time to join us on the podcast today. Thank you. Many blessings to you.